This one goes deep, folks. On this episode, educator Corey Smith joins me to talk about the benefits of being an octopus by Anne Braden. We talk glitter and poster board, coffee and peanut butter smoothies, and using the equity literacy framework to dismantle inequality in our systems of learning with both students and adults. What might we, and you, miss about students' complicated home lives? And what can we learn from gun control debates about community conversations? Told ya, strap in, it's Vermont Ed Reads. Let's chat. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Corey Smith and I work at the Greater Rutland County Supervisory Union. Um, up until last year, I was a classroom teacher. I had taught first grade, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade, with third grade being uh, my most recent. And at the end of the year, I was given the opportunity to um, become a PBL coach. Uh, all the PBLs um, are encompassed in that. So now I get to have the opportunity to go into the schools within our district and work with the teachers to implement project-based learning, proficiency-based education, um, place-based learning, technology, and student-centered learning. So that's what I do now. Excellent. We are um, visiting, the, or we're recording in the school in which Corey was a first, second, third, and fourth grade teacher. And I got to tell you, there's more flexible seating in this school than I've seen anywhere. It's really a lovely, lovely building. Thanks for inviting me in. Yeah, thanks for coming here. So I'm going to start, start us off with um, my favorite question. What are you reading now? Um, so I am reading Harbor Me by Jacqueline Woodson right now. I have uh, an 11 year old sixth grader at home who has been a, an incredibly reluctant reader his entire life. And this year's uh, DCF list came out and it excited him. And he has been reading nonstop. So we decided to pick out a book from the DCF list to read together. And so that's what we're reading. We're not too far into it yet, but I'm really excited about it so far. I really love all of Jacqueline Woodson's books, but Har Harbor Me was a really special one. I think it's a great empathy builder, so good choice for both of you. Um, so let's get to this book, which we both adored. Yes. Which um, Vermont educators are really loving, and educators all over the country, The Benefits of Being an Octopus by Anne Braden. I wondered if you could introduce us to Zoe by reading the first few paragraphs of the book. Sure. I settled onto the couch with the chocolate pudding I saved from Friday school lunch. The silence was amazing. Well, it's not complete silence. Hector is spinning the whirring dragon on his baby seat while he eats Cheerios. But it's pretty close. I savor a spoonful of pudding. How long do I have before Bryce and Aurora burst out of our bedroom arguing about something? When I left them in there, Aurora was pretending to be Bryce's cat, and he was pretending to feed her milk. But that can't last. I mean, they're three and four. That's not how it works. I take another bite with my eye on the bedroom door, but it stays closed. This never happens. I glance down at my backpack. My debate prep packet is inside and I'm actually tempted to work on it. I'm not a kid who does homework and I definitely don't do big projects, which usually require glitter and markers and poster board and all sorts of things, none of which I have. Plus last year in sixth grade, when I actually turned in a poster project, 
Kaylee Vine announced to the whole class, everyone alert the authorities. Zoe Albro turned in a project. The world must be ending. Then she made that uh, uh, uh sound like a fire drill and did it every time she passed me in the hall for the whole next week. So Zoe has uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. Um, we just met um, we just met Bryce and Aurora, three and four, and then she has an even younger sibling, Hector, uh, who is around a toddler age. And so Zoe is responsible for caring for these kids because her mom works. Um, and uh, in the afternoon, Zoe will get off the bus and she'll meet the kids at their bus stop to pick them up, to take them home. She'll go to the pizza shop where her mom works to pick up the baby. And she cares for these kids. And as you get to know her, you find that, that a lot of what caring for the kids means is keeping them quiet and making sure that they're not interrupting other adults in the house. Yeah, she gets them ready for school every morning. Not only, I mean, think of it, it's hard enough to get myself ready for work, but she's a seventh grader who gets herself ready for school and she gets uh, two of these three kids ready to get onto the Head Start bus yeah. every single school day. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a tremendous amount of responsibility and yet we could also hear um, the way Zoe's Teachers must see her. She owns up that she doesn't really do projects or homework. And so I'm sure that given the lens of school, they really see her not as a responsible person. Yeah, as I read the book, I, um, I guess what struck me was, was my own teaching practice. And I really used the book to reflect upon myself as a teacher. And how many times have I made quick judgments about students? without really knowing who they are, what their background is, what they come to school with every day. And with her, as, as the reader, she comes off as incredibly responsible, um, a caretaker, and yet the people at school don't see that from her. Yeah. And I love that Anne Braden, as an author, gives us this real appreciative lens to look at her and her many strengths. And, and she has so many. She does. She's uh, a cre creative as a caretaker of these children. She tells them, makes up stories every single evening. Yeah, I love the stories. I had, I had been jotting notes as I read, and the stories that she tells them is incredible. Right. She's this, and yet at school, she's completely silent. But at home, she's this incredible story weaver. Um, what other strengths did you notice in Zoe? With Zoe, I had said that she was, she was a great caregiver to her siblings. Um, she's incredibly creative though it comes out in um, ways that we might not expect or ways that most people wouldn't see from her. She is adaptable. I don't know that she views herself as adaptable, but she has so many different situations within her life and so many responsibilities, and she adapts to what she needs to be for each of those people in her life. Her friend Silas, her friend Fuchsia, her siblings, her mom, that we see her take on different I don't want to say personalities, but um, different characteristics to help her be this strong person in each of those scenarios. Um, I also thought she was incredibly brave for everything that she goes through. You know, she is a seventh grader, so that puts her at 12 or 13, and you look at everything that she's going through. Um, and I sort of felt like she was the glue that held her, that she's the glue that holds her family together, that she is the one who brings the family together and, and makes sure that it functions. Yeah. Yes. Her mother could not do it without her, for sure. 
And that brings up that Zoe has a lot of obstacles in her life. There are a lot of struggles and obstacles to her success, not just in school, but in general. And I wondered if we wanted to sort of name some of those obstacles that Zoe faces. Yeah, um, I, I sort of feel like a lot of her strengths are also obstacles. Being the caregiver is a strength for her, but at the same time, it's an obstacle because she is a seventh grader who does not get to do seventh grade things. If you look through what she had to go through to to get paperwork signed to be on the debate club, it wasn't what your typical seventh grade student would have to do. Um, I think um, another one of her struggles is is her fi- family dynamic. Um, you know, mom works quite a bit, and when she comes home, she has to be a caregiver, not necessarily to the children, but to her boyfriend and her boyfriend's father. Um, and Zoe is responsible for making sure the kids are quiet so that Lenny, the stepfather or boyfriend, um, doesn't get agitated or annoyed at the kids. Um, so I, I think her family life can be a struggle. Right. And her family is, um, uh, it's, her family is complicated, right? She has a father. Um, her father is one man. Um, uh, the two older siblings have a different father. And then Hector's father is Lenny. So Lenny doesn't have a lot of affection for Zoe or her uh, two older siblings. He only has eyes for Hector. And and Zoe, her housing situation has been rocky. And she's really invested in staying in this house, in this trailer, because it's clean, because it's tidy, because it's a home. Um, but Lenny doesn't make that easy for them. He's got pretty strict high standards, especially given that there are toddlers. And um, and he's, well, he seems like a stable guy. He's got a job, the place is tidy, the bills are mostly paid. He's got other issues. Yeah, um, you hear the way that he talks to people throughout the story, um, especially to Zoe's mom. Yeah. And a lot of blaming so he does come off as being this responsible guy who provides but at the same time he provides the home but not the stability or the caring environment that these kids need yeah he undercuts Zoe's mom a lot and she spends a lot of time wondering why her mom isn't as strong as she remembers her and that's another obstacle I think is Zoe's concern for her mother and her mother's well-being and the whole family's well-being she carries a lot And I think at some point, too, she starts to hear what Lenny is saying to her mom, and she starts questioning herself and wondering if she fits those character traits that Lenny says her mom has, not necessarily that her mom does have. Right. So. Yeah, there's a lot of emotional tension in this house that Zoe has to navigate constantly. And then there are just these, like, practical things, these obstacles to just belonging that uh, Zoe carries. Her clothes are usually not clean. She rarely has time to brush her hair or her siblings' hair. So her appearance, at a time when appearance is everything, seventh grade, her appearance doesn't really fit in, and so she gets made fun of for the way she looks or smells. Um, And so she really doesn't have a sense of belonging at school. No, and because of her family struggles, you know, she comes with assignments not done. She doesn't participate in extracurricular activities like other kids do. So when she does, kids tend to poke fun at her. Yeah, yeah. It's, and they, it just flies just under the radar in ways that we're a little familiar with, I think, when we yes. spend time in schools. 
Yeah. So, so the octopus comes to have really special meaning for Zoe. And so I wondered, given the title, the benefits of being an octopus, and the octopus theme runs throughout the book, if you want to talk a little bit about what the octopus represents for Zoe. Yeah. Um, so Zoe brings up the octopus pretty quickly um, at the beginning of the book because she has this assignment that she's thinking that she might actually complete this time. They have to um, debate which animal they think is the best. And so she goes on to explain the octopus. And she views the octopus as this really strong creature, that it has multiple tentacles or arms, which would allow her to handle multiple tasks at a time, do her homework, pack her backpack, take care of the kids. Um, she talks about how the octopus can camouflage itself. So if it's in a really nervous situation, um, if that were her, she could blend in. People wouldn't necessarily notice her during those really uncomfortable times. Um, she at one point talks about the octopus starting out as this really small, vulnerable creature, and it grows into this really powerful creature, and that it sort of defies the odds in that sense, and that she wishes that that could be her, that I think she feels pretty small, maybe um, invisible or potentially even useless, and that if she were this octopus, she could grow into this creature that is powerful and doesn't let things bother her. Um, she oftentimes is listening near her mother's bedroom to how Lenny is talking to her mother. And when she talks about going up to these spaces to do things, she's talking about slinking along and how quiet and stealthy an octopus is, which would allow her to do what she's doing and taking care of her family and keeping them safe without the challenges in her life affecting her. You know, um, at Middle Grades Institute, which you and I were both at, Anne Braden, the author, came to meet with teachers and talk about this book. And I, I had lunch with her with a couple other MGI folks. And um, we were, she and a couple of us have this great fondness for animal names of groups of animals. Like a, the one I recently came across was a, a, a group of um, hummingbirds is called a charm, a charm of hummingbirds. Um, another one is... Um, um, a flamboyance of flamingos. They're so much fun. So I looked up, what's a group of octopus called? And um, turns out, by the way, you guys, Zoe tells me that the plural can be octopi <laughs> or octopus, so I'm choosing octopus. A group of octopus doesn't have a name because octopus are solitary creatures. And it occurs to me that Zoe is also a very solitary creature. She doesn't really feel like she fits in anywhere. Yeah, I... I think she views the octopus as this big, strong creature, but at the same time, um, a creature that's by itself. And, and one of the things I was thinking of as I was reading the book is she talks so much about how if she were an, an octopus, and I think she's more like the octopus than she ever gives herself credit for um, in the ways of, of being solitary, but also in the ways of strength. Yes, she has so many strengths. And also in the way of camouflage. She often flies under the radar at school. Um, from her peers and from her teachers, except one teacher who takes a special interest in her, Mrs. Rochambeau, her social studies teacher. And I'm just going to pull up uh, page 38 to do a little introducing of this teacher. Octopuses can squish their bodies down to no bigger than a crumpled up bag of chips. By the time Mrs. Rochambeau gets to my desk, I might as well be that balled up bag with all the chip bits eaten, ready to be tossed into the trash. Ms. Rochambeau raises her eyebrows when she gets to me. Not enough. How close?
clever to ball up like a bag of chips, way, but in a you have disappointed me with your very being way that teachers are so good at. She shakes her head as she rates my zero in her grade book. Sometime, Zoe, I hope you surprise me. I forgot it at home, I say to my desk. I promise I finished it. Mm-hmm, she murmurs. It doesn't do you any good at home, unfortunately. She pretends she believes me. I pretend I don't want to squirt octopus ink all over this classroom. Maybe I could be in the debate anyway, I say, even though she's already moved on to the next kid. I know all my facts. She doesn't look up from the other kid's packet. Then you should have brought in your filled out packet so I could see that. I was very clear with my expectations. Whew. What are you thinking about that, Corey? Yeah, I had mixed feelings about Mrs. Rochambeau. Um, you read passages like that and, you, oh, the emotions. <laughs> you feel very frustrated. Um, and then there are moments throughout the book where I think maybe she gets Zoe. Um, but she goes back and forth so often that I, I really wonder um, if she really understands who Zoe is. And then I think about me and being a teacher, and I wonder how many times have I done that exact thing to a student? Not intentionally, but out of frustration. Um, and and so I, I try to see Mrs. Rochambeau's or Miss Rochambeau's um, point of view, but at the same time, it's it, you come away feeling hurt for Zoe. Yeah, yes. I think one of the things that really interests me is that while I was doing research for this and thinking about what we were going to talk about, I stumbled across this um, really interesting website. It was called, um, I think it's called Writing Mindsets, and um, writingmindset.org. And um, I'm going to put a, a link to it in the transcript because it was called Using Mentor Text to Analyze How Kids See Schools and Teachers. And um, the author of this blog has pulled a bunch of pieces from young adult and middle grades literature, including Harbor Me, by the way, um, to examine, uh, to look at teachers in schools through the lens of young students and imagine what they see. And um, I, I, it really made me think about my own experience as a school librarian and the ways I might have come across in ways I didn't intend to and think about and reflect on that and reflect on how much power our words and our tone and our way of being in a classroom has and in ways that we don't intend or realize. And Ms. Rochambeau, I think, would be mortified to know what's going on in Zoe's mind. Yeah, and I think it goes, I think, throughout the book as she's um, trying to reach out to Zoe, you see those moments where she thinks she's doing the right thing. So I think it's very unintentional, but at the same time, sometimes she comes off as this villain. Yeah. What I appreciated about that, I have to say, what I appreciated about how um, Anne Braden wrote Ms. Rochambeau is that um, you know Ms. Rochambeau gets these glimpses of Zoe. She sees her in this um, particularly tense moment at the bus stop when things go awry and she's picking up her siblings um, and she sees um, so she gets to see these little windows into Zoe's real life and the responsibility that Zoe's carrying um, but 
And so she becomes more empathetic. But I also really appreciated that she didn't rescue Zoe, that this is not, does not use that teacher as savior trope, that we are complicated people as educators and that um, it's not our job to save kids. No, and I don't think it's realistic for us. Um, I think what she did do is she gave Zoe the stepping off points that Zoe needed to save herself. Yes. You know, um, that Zoe may not have been happy with how the whole debate club came about, but if she was never given that push, everything that came of that, standing up for her friends, standing up for her family, never would have happened. So I think that she was not Zoe's savior by any means, but she certainly gave her the tools that that she needed to be her own savior. Yeah, so we didn't, we haven't shared that with our listeners, but um, Ms. Rochambeau eventually does see some real potential in Zoe, and she invites her into this after-school debate club and offers her a ride to make it possible. So uh, by no means a villain, but um, uh, at all, in, in many ways, a great help in the way that teachers all over Vermont ed are. Um, she gives Zoe these opportunities to shine in different ways. Um, so I had a little love, a little love-hate relationship. It, I, I did too. Lott. I didn't know if I liked her or if I didn't like her. Um, but I think ultimately she did the best that she could. I mean, teachers can do so much, you know, and we are human and have limitations as well. So I think that she did what she needed to do with Zoe, maybe not in a way that Zoe always was happy with, but I think in maybe a way that Zoe needed. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that analysis of Mizar. Let's move on to another character. Uh, I wondered if you'd introduce us to Zoe's neighbor, Silas. Um, on pages 28 and 29. Let's get a little picture of, Z of Silas. Sure. Maybe Silas is stealthily enough to figure out how to reconnect our electricity without the company knowing. But it might have to be a bobcat-shaped electrical box for him to pay any attention to it. He's going on, now, about what its scratch marks look like on trees. About how you have to keep your face in the wind when you're tracking. Whatever bobcat is out there, it's one that knows how to hide, knows how to disappear. Too bad, man, I say. Silas stops walking, looks at me, and gives that same weird, we're part, we're part of an awesome conspiracy smile. No, not bad at all. I stare at him. I picture his dad and him sitting in the front seat of their truck talking about bobcat tracks. They always seem so happy together, like they're on the same team. Hey, I say, do you know where you filed that form to get help with electricity and stuff like that? He stops and looks at me. I think my dad used to bring it to family services up on Route 14. Oh yeah, thanks. He nods and goes back to talking about the bobcat stuff. About how snow conditions are perfect because they prefer to be able to walk on hard-crusted snow. But this most recent dusting over that icy stuff will let him pick up its tracks. On and on. Until we reach the bus stop. It's packed with kids older than us and who look a whole lot less grimy than we do. And he clams up like he's never once heard of a bobcat because that's Silas's superpower, going for an entire school day without talking. He's been doing it since the fifth grade when Brendan Farley got people to place bets on how quickly Silas would start crying. So he's really good at it by now. Mm. Silas breaks my heart a little bit. I love him. Yeah, he um he goes through 
just as many struggles as Zoe does, which is perhaps why they have this connection throughout the book. Yeah. He, um, I've known Silas's in schools, kids who slide under the radar, who are quiet, who don't engage. And um, I don't know. Um, I worried about him all the time throughout the book. He's got such a good heart. And no one can see it because he's completely closed off and made himself invisible. He erases himself at school. I wonder what we could do for kids like Silas in schools. Yeah, he was, um, I liked his character so much and I, I would worry what would happen if he didn't have Zoe in his life. Mm -hmm. Someone that he could connect with because he and Zoe would always meet at the bus stop and they would always chat and most times about hunting and bobcats. Um, but he goes through a period in the book where he even shuts Zoe out and you worry about him quite a bit. He has a strong connection though with his father as well, right? So he's got this home connection, but so many of the things he's good at is tracking and um, don't show up at school. Um, I think he is alienated from much of the content in school because it doesn't have relevance to the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's something that um, Vermont educators are starting to understand about their students. And with um, their imp- the implementation of passion projects or PLPs, um, that we're starting to get to see more kids taking on content that they really like. I was talking to a friend who was saying that her middle school son is really passionate about his hunter ed program and that it has nothing to do with she or her husband, but that he gets there, he's studying, he's really engaged, and it's all this learning he's doing outside of school in the way that Silas is doing all this learning about bobcats. Um, that where, where, how do we get teachers to understand that so that finds a place on his learning portfolio or his PLP? Yeah, I think so often we're so stuck in these standards and that there's one right way to teach standards um, and certain content that goes with certain standards. And as we start exploring giving students more voice in their education, I think we're going to start seeing more kids meeting proficiencies because it's content that excites them. It's stuff that they're already doing. I mean, how many kids are out there doing exactly what Silas is doing? And if you look at the transferable skills, how many kids could meet those transferable skills through their passion? Yeah. Yes. I love that. So, um, so Silas and Zoe have a lot in common, and Zoe has one other friend at school, Fuchsia, who's got a life that's as complicated as hers. But there's another classmate that she really admires, maybe in a crushy kind of way, named Matt. Um, and I think he, she likes him because he's a nice kid, he works really hard at school, he gets good grades, like everybody likes Matt. And... Um, uh, I, could, I think there's this really interesting contrast between his life and hers. And so I'm going to read from page 83 to give a little sense of, of who Matt is and uh, the role he plays in Zoe's life. On the bus, I ignore the eighth grade boy who pretend coughs some comment I can't understand and lean my face against the window. 
I can see Matt's house as soon as we turn the corner onto his street. His front door is open, and when the bus pulls up in front of his house, I can make out his mom in the doorway with him, pushing a travel mug into his hand. She gives him a kiss on the cheek just as he heads toward the bus. Is that coffee? Someone calls as Matt makes his way down the aisle of the bus. Yeah, right, Matt says. Banana peanut butter smoothie. I was up late working on the essay for social studies and I didn't have time for breakfast. I try to picture my mom pulling herself out of bed to make me a smoothie because I'm tired in the morning. As if she wasn't exhausted. As if she didn't have to take care of Hector. As if Frank wouldn't throw a fit for getting woken up by a blender. As if we had a working blender. As if we had bananas. As if. There's just this really great um, tension uh, between Zoe's life and as she becomes aware of how different other people's lives are. Yeah, I, Matt comes off as almost having the perfect life. You know, mom that kisses him goodbye at the door and gives him breakfast. And, um, you know, he runs for class president, I think it is, um, part of the debate club. You know, he comes off as, as seemingly perfect. Yeah. And um, I think at one point, Zoe even acknowledges him and, and says something along the lines of it's not so much in a crush way, but it's more of an, an admiration way. She admires his traits that he has. Yeah, and he's kind to her, especially when she joins the debate club and shows herself to be a worthy opponent. He, he acknowledges her her knowledge and her and her knowledge of baseball, I believe it is. Yeah. Is it baseball or football? Um, football, knowledge. because Zoe likes football. She watches that with Lenny. It's the one time she and Lenny connect. Yes. And Lenny actually shares food with her. Yes. Yes. Um, so there's something about that that's really interesting to me. And one of the most wonderful things about Ann Braden is she's a former educator, a middle school educator, uh, social studies, I believe. And... Um, she has the best teacher's guide on her website for this book. Have you had a look at it? I've briefly looked at it. One of the things she does is there's an activity in there about comparing Zoe's family's budget with Matt's family's budget. And so um, it's a great opportunity to um, work with students around um, some math, um, around difference, how people's lives are different, around um, equity, really and thinking about um, the resources that are available to us, the obstacles that are in our way. Um, so I, I really love that Anne sort of builds this into the, no into the novel and then also into her educator's guide. Um, yeah, so that brings me to this next question, which is how might you use this book in the classroom? Um, so I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this. I have never been a middle grades educator. Um, because I've always taught fourth grade or under. But I think what I love so much about this book is there's such a movement in education right now with equity, acknowledging inequities and educating people on inequities and equities and, and how to approach that. And I think it's so easy for us in little rural Vermont to say, you know, we don't have a problem. We don't have racial difference, um, cultural differences. You know, we all outwardly appear to be the same but the inequity that is so common in our little schools is is our socioeconomic status and poverty and so I think that 
this book brings that to light, just the differences in home lives with all of our students. And I think students need to recognize that within one another. Um, when choosing the book that my son and I were going to read this morning, I or not this morning, but when I chose the, when my son and I chose the DCF book we wanted to read together, one of the books that we had talked about was The Benefits of Being an Octopus. And I was hoping he would pick it only because I felt like it was something that um, he could really relate to within our own town. Um, I think students need to see what all students go through. And I think that this book just paints a nice picture, whether it's Silas or Fuchsia or Zoe or even Matt, it sort of brings in all of those, all of those students and all of their home lives. Yeah. I think when we ignore um, the way in which difference shows up and is privileged or not, in our schools, it's an act of erasure because I've been, I travel around to schools all the time and we have more students of color in our schools, even our small schools, than we acknowledge. And, um, and so there's, there's an act of erasure when we say, oh, well, we don't really have, race isn't really an issue we need to deal with because we do actually. Um, we have students of color in great numbers in some of our schools and then in some of our schools even um, race impacts all of us. It right? does, whether it's Viewed as big or not, the idea of we don't have racial problems or we don't have race is a problem in and of itself. Exactly. And then, and then you're right, too, about um, economics plays a huge role in um, the way that kids have access to the resources and um, privileges that help them exceed in school or um, excel in school, I should say, or not, right? And so... I love this question from Paul Gorski that I think plays well with this book, which is, how is your school set up to bestow unearned privilege on some and unearned obstacles on others? And so for Zoe, a place that we can recognize right away that there's some some, uh, variation in access is the homework policy, right? Like that... Um, whether it's that she doesn't have access to poster board and glitter, so she just gets newsprint, or just the time she has available and the help she has available to her after school hours to do that homework that is required of her. Um, so I, I, when Anne came to MGI, when Anne Braden came to MGI, we sort of looked at Zoe's life through the equity literacy framework, and I'll share our presentation on the transcript and thought about how do we first recognize those things, such as homework, um, and then what might we do as a school to respond to those in some way, and then redress. Like, well, how does our policy need to change to meet the needs of students like Zoe? And then how do we create and sustain equitable school environments over time? And so we really use that lens to examine Zoe's circumstances. And I think what's great is that we can bring students into that conversation. With a, with a book like this, we can use that framework to have students have that conversation and talk about how can we make our schools better for all? Um, because it, it's it's ultimately, it's their education. Yeah. How do we look at um, school policies or school procedures or just everyday events in school through the lens, from through all sorts of lenses to see who gets, who benefits and who doesn't? Yeah. I love, I love helping students use the equity literacy framework from a young age. Imagine the society will we, we will be if kids can do that uh, in sixth and seventh and eighth grade. Um, 
So another way to use this book is um, with teachers. Yeah, I, I think for the same reason. Um, for me, it was eye-opening because I questioned my own practice. I questioned who I am as a teacher, and I, I questioned how I can make myself better. How can I talk to students? How can I build relationships? Um, and I, I, I'm not afraid to admit that at one point in my career, I was one of those teachers who said, we don't have a problem. I don't have a problem, but I do, and, and that's okay. Um, but I think it takes reading something like this for me to, to be like, huh, you know, is that me? And then having conversations as a faculty, it's the same thing. Use the same framework, the literacy equity framework of um, looking at our policies and how do we make them more equitable, equitable for all students. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of adults reading middle grades and young adult novels and picture books, frankly, as a librarian. Um, with an eye towards empathy, how do we step into the shoes of, of students in general again? Because it's hard to remember what you were like at 12, right? It's hard to remember what it was like to go through the day as an eight-year-old or as a 15-year-old, right? So I'm a big fan of, of using you know, young adult and middle grades literature to step into the shoes of young people in general. And then you know, whether, um, whether we were raised middle class or not, we are now as educators middle class. And so being able to step into the shoes of a, a working class, a working poor kid is huge, right? Um, I think about how much we don't see because we've never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. I also think about for kids that this novel, I was raised um, working poor and so this book for me was like being seen in a different way. When I was a kid, all the books I read about kids were middle-class kids, and I thought that was a normal life. Um, I thought that if only we were normal, right? And I think Zoe has that a little bit too, like, oh, if only I, you know, like everybody else. And so this book was like an act of like, oh, this is normal too, right? Like, and, and to feel really seen. I think it lets kids see themselves in literature. And for their strengths. Like, Zoe's not somebody we pity. No, no, she's strong. I mean, I, I even was thinking throughout the whole thing that, that she, to me, she, she would be a hero for me because of everything that she works really hard for and accomplishes. Yeah. Um, so I love, I love the dual play that you can use this with kids and with teachers in, in really profound ways. Another plug for Ann Braden's um, Educator's Guide is, um, I don't know, let's see if you were, because I used to do this. Uh, when I was a school librarian, it, I used to have debates sometimes. Did you ever have debates in your classroom? No. <laughs> no. Maybe it's an older thing. I think with fifth and sixth graders, we used to have debates. And um, Anne offers this other structure that comes out of her work with guns, conversations around guns and gun control in Vermont which is how do we, although we might differ in our opinions about an issue, whether it's about guns and gun control or about something else, how do we come to common ground? So this idea that instead of debating each other, me pitting ourselves and our opinions against each other, how do we have conversations and listen well, listen well so that we can find that space where we agree? 
even though we're not going to agree on everything. And I think that would be a profound thing to do with teachers as well as with students, right? I think so, too. And so I highly recommend folks. I can't recommend the Educator's Guide enough. I'll put a link in the transcript. Or you can find it by uh, going to Ann Braden's website. Um, what other books would you recommend for our listeners? who are interested in this one have maybe already yeah. read The Benefits of Being an Octopus and are looking for other ways to be empathetic for the student experience or uh, the experience of poor working uh, families. So um, there are a few books that have been recommended to me, but I have not yet read myself, um, but I've heard wonderful things. Um, I know No Fixed Address, which is on this year's DCF, um, was a book that was recommended to me. And then uh, another... Oh. I just want to say I love that book. We did a podcast on it last spring, and um, it is a tremendously good book about a kid. He lives in Canada, but it could be a Vermont experience of a kid in housing insecurity, um, which is what we call it in schools, right? We don't call it homelessness. Usually we call it housing, being housing insecure. And so um, I just adored Felix, the main character in that book. It's a great read. It's a great companion to this book, actually. It's on my list. Um, and then another book that was recommended to me um, was Front Desk. Oh. So I will have to, I have not yet read that one, but I have an aunt who's a librarian who highly recommended that one um, because I was looking for books to start conversations with my 11-year-old. Yeah, and Front Desk, I think, I haven't read that one yet either. It's on my list, but it's got a highly capable young woman who helps her family. Run their, run the front desk of, of their motel, hotel, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to put some other titles on. One of my very favorite YA books is a little bit older is Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. And um, Eleanor uh, lives in, um, in poverty and, and really brings to light what it's like to be a high school kid um, uh, struggling uh, with in, under financial tension. Um, and I have a couple other titles we'll make a little list to put on the, on the transcript if you're interested in this topic. And I'm also going to make sure to link that um, uh, 33 passages from middle grade and young adult books to spark discussions about schools and teachers for your use. Because I'd love to hear, folks, if you decide to have a conversation as a faculty or as a team about um, some of these quotes and, and what they, how they help you think about your presence in the classroom. Any other thoughts on the benefits of it being an octopus? Anything we didn't get to that you want to make sure we get to? No, the only thing that I would say is that if there is one book that you choose to read, it should be this book. I, I think that um, it will open your eyes. I think you'll find it to be an incredibly great read and a really reflective read. Yeah, I recommend it as a read aloud too. I think it would be a great read aloud in the classroom. I um, know a teacher at Floodbrook is planning to read it aloud to seventh grade students this year. We had a long chat with that. And, and connect with Anne. Um, she, she's a busy woman because her book has, is on fire. But um, she does do Skype visits and um, check out her website for all the resources that she provides. She's so lovely. She's a really lovely human. Um, it was such a pleasure to have her at MGI at the Middle Grades Institute this summer. And it's such a pleasure to have you, Corey, on the podcast. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm about this book and for joining me to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to talk about it.
I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Corey Smith for appearing on the show and talking with me about the benefits of being an octopus. If you're looking for a copy of the benefits of being an octopus, check your local library, but they're likely to put you on a wait list. This one is popular, folks. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.